American Heroes Channel presents Against the Odds, AHC's inaugural podcast series featuring the true stories of real-life band of brothers who exhibited unparalleled bravery, solidarity, and endurance on the battlefield to come out on top in a fight against impossible odds. Reliving battles from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and Iraq, these are true stories of the harsh realities of war as told by the veterans who survived to tell. I'm your host, Shane Bowler, and this week we present The Heroes of Tarawa. In 1943, two years after Pearl Harbor, America launches a controversial plan to attack the Japanese homeland. The Japanese-held island of Tarawa will be the first target for the American Marines. An hour after launching the attack, the U.S. forces face disaster. I had no idea before that how really violent combat could be. Your enemy is within arm's length. You probably smell his breath. And you're there to kill each other. They could come on the beach that first night and run over us, kill every one of us. We could see the Amtrak's getting decimated. Myself and I think a few other guys offered a few prayers. With the battle on the beaches of Tarawa near collapse, a tiny group of unlikely heroes launch an impossible mission to save their brothers. Their incredible sacrifice and courage will not only change the course of battle, but the fate of World War II. This is their story, Against the Odds, the Forgotten Warriors at the Battle of Tarawa. By November of 1943, after two years of desperate fighting, Operation Galvanic is America's first and most critical test of a daring new Central Pacific campaign. The controversial offensive would be a high-stakes test of unproven new theories of fast carrier operations, mobile logistics, and amphibious warfare. It will send the American 5th Fleet leapfrogging on a tight timeline across the enemy-held island chains, the Gilberts, Marshalls, Marianas, Paolau, Bonin, and finally into Ryukyu, securing airfields along the way for U.S. heavy bombers that will ultimately soften Japan for an invasion. America's first salvo in this epic and treacherous new fight to annihilate their Japanese enemy will begin at Tarawa, in the Gilbert Islands. They chose Tarawa because Tarawa had an airfield. 
They also wanted to test a theory of assaulting an island that was heavily defended. The Navy had never yet done that. They had had some assaults, but never against a solidly entrenched island such as uh, Tarawa was. On board the transports are 35,000 troops, including 20,000 men of the 2nd Marine Division. While many are veterans of Guadalcanal, there are thousands of young recruits barely out of boot camp. And almost everything the Marines are about to do has never been done before. The tactics and techniques they will use to storm the heavily defended island of Tarawa have never been proven in battle. Their landing craft, tracked amphibious vehicles called Amtraks, capable of travel on both land and water, along with Higgins boats, built to transport up to 30 Marines, have never been tested in landings on coral reef islands under heavy fire. But commanders and the young Marines feel confident even as they sail into the unknown. They've not yet experienced the horrors of the hellish islands they will attempt to capture, nor the brutality of an enemy that awaits them. Only two miles long and a half mile wide, the tiny island of Betio, located within the Tarawa Atoll, has for the past year been fortified, heavily gunned, and engineered into an invader's nightmare. The island's prized airfield is protected on all sides by dozens of heavy anti-boat artillery pieces, with machine guns buried deep into heavily reinforced bunkers and over 500 pillboxes. Beaches wait behind ferocious minefields, barbed wire, and anti-boat tetrahedrons. When you come into an operation such as Tarawa, you're not just facing the enemy defenses, you're also facing nature. There's a reef that surrounds Tarawa, a coral reef, jagged rock that uh, can rip out the bottoms of boats. American military planners were counting on at least four to five feet of water over that reef. They had studied the tides as much as they could, but it was a very inexact science. Also awaiting the Americans are 45 elite Riku Sentai Marines. Trained, disciplined, and well-supplied, they have but one plan, defend Tarawa to the death. Admiral Shibasaki, the brilliant Japanese garrison commander, encouraged his troops by saying, it would take a million men 100 years to conquer Tarawa. On November 18, 1943, Roger Colby was a Marine in the 1st Battalion, 2nd Division. We were told we were going to uh, capture or land on a, an island called Tarawa, which we'd never heard of or probably nobody else had. On the way out, of course, uh, we were given information about it and uh, how we would go in, where we would go in, what we would do. Edward Bale Jr. was a Marine in the 1st Corps Medium Tank Battalion. I recall this Admiral standing there and saying that naval gunfire had always destroyed, but in this case it was going to obliterate. 
the Navy left us with the impression that we would land and we would just clean up the mess and we'd go across the island and make a turning movement, have lunch, go down to the tail end of the island, be back aboard ship before dark that night and be on the way to Hawaii. William Steele Sr. served in the 3rd Battalion, 8th Marines Regiment. Well, it was a real adventure to me because I'd never been out of Tennessee. So when they went and told us all about that, we thought, well, well this is a cakewalk, you know. William Jeffries served in the 1st Battalion, 6th Marines Regiment. Walk now, veteran told us what to expect. And all those young guys never been in, in combat before. We was ready for combat. And the old walking out there and said, you'll find out. On November 20th, 1943, the naval bombardment of Tarawa begins. Most of these guys were just 18, 19, 20 year old, some you know, just out of high school. These men had never experienced this before, so they thought, wow, this is great. No one can live through this. At 0900, the three-hour naval bombardment comes to an end as the Marines prepare to assault the beaches. The assault will send three Marine battalions moving in five waves from the north onto three adjoining beaches designated Red 1, 2, and 3. Green Beach on the western shoreline, along with the black beaches on the southern shoreline, are not figured into the planning. Now you have these Marines who had just seen the bombardment. Some of the Marines even started joking, I wonder if there's going to be anyone left alive on that island for us? So they start to get into the landing craft, the Amtraks of the first three waves, and had to head toward shore. And that's where reality clashed with dreams. Six thousand yards from shore, the Marines are shocked as the enemy's defense guns suddenly open up in a blistering fire. The Japanese are very much alive. We could see the Amtraks ahead of us. We could see right away they were having problems. Up to then, we all thought, well, this is going to be a cakewalk and we'd just go ahead and take it. But we knew right away that something different was going to happen. These Marines who thought things were getting worse now that they had were taking fire, were about to find out that things were going to get much, much worse. As the Marines crawled through the deadly Japanese gauntlet, ahead laid the island's coral reef. With the battle in chaos, it is uncertain if the tide will be high enough to allow the landing craft to cross. Within moments, a naval observation plane reports the gut-wrenching news to the flagship. The reef is fully exposed. The Amtrak's forced to slow in order to traverse the reef, 
take on Japanese gunfire. The freakish low tide strikes again. A five-foot seawall has been exposed, making it impossible for most of the Amtraks to cross. Withering Japanese gunfire pins them down behind the seawall. Unable to know the horror just a few hundred yards ahead, the fourth assault wave traveling in Higgins boats closes in on the deadly reef. They have no way of knowing that the tide is too low for their flat-bottomed Higgins boats to pass over the reef. They're heading into a death trap. The chaos of the staggering Japanese onslaught has left communications in shambles. Colonel David Shoup, commanding officer of the 2nd Marines, can do little as desperate, fractured messages ring out from his dying Marines at the seawall. Nor can he alert his Marines in the approaching Higgins boats that the reef is impassable. Within hours of America's most critical test of their Central Pacific campaign, the landing force at Tarawa is being decimated. I think we were all amazed that all of a sudden his Higgins boats and several around us stopped. And the driver of the Higgins boat says, get out, we can't take you any further. We all looked at each other and and our uh, uh, sergeant who was in charge of said, let's go. And so we started slipping over the side. That's when we really realized that this was gonna be any fun. This was gonna be the real deal. Myself and I think a few, uh, few other guys offered a few prayers. It was, it was just hectic. You just look around and a guy would fall, you, there wasn't nothing you'd do for him. Of course, we were all moving in and we, of course, there was a lot of casualties. We could see them going in the water. My gutter, uh, he just went underwater and I thought, well, he's slipped in a hole or something. I went over and pulled him out and, and he had a hole in his head and I knew that couldn't do anything for him, so I grabbed the mortar that he had and started to move it on in. In one of those Higgins boats stuck at the reef was Major Mike Ryan, a respected Marine officer. Ryan was headed toward Red One, but Red One had some of the, the, the worst of the Japanese defenses. He ordered his men out into the water and as he looked out, he, he saw just total chaos. Well, he noticed that Green Beach, the right side of the uh, island, seemed to be a little less defended. There are some Marines already there, so he started to veer his Marines over toward Green Beach. Major Mike Ryan is a perfect example of the Marine improvisation. 
to improvise, it takes a person who, under fire, can still think, it can still be calm, it can still substitute his own plans. Not everyone can do that. Major Mike Ryan certainly did. Ryan, landing on Green Beach, finds an undefended gap in the entrenched Japanese fortifications. He realizes that if he can assemble a force, he can knock out the Japanese in the gap. And if he can hold this part of the beach long enough, he can provide a secure landing area for a larger, intact assault unit that can surge eastward to meet up with Red Beach forces and break the Japanese stronghold. But Ryan is faced with an immediate problem. There are no intact units on Green Beach. Now in the chaos of trying to get to shore, he had men from his unit with him, he had men from other units with him. He would go up and, and, and take other men who were just by themselves or in pairs. He'd say, come with me. And one by one, two by two, he started to build up some sort of an outfit that he knew he could lead inland and start knocking out some of these Japanese fortifications. These Marines would forever after be known as Ryan's Orphans. Ryan not only gathers up orphan troops, but something to prove rare and priceless on Tarawa. Two of the few surviving Sherman M4 medium tanks, driven west from the fire-swept red beaches, commanded by brash and courageous Lieutenant Ed Bale. I was unaware until I got on the beach and saw the horror. It was a shock. The beach was cluttered with wounded, dead, equipment of all kinds. And I ran into Mike Ryan, and he had to gather this outfit together and reorganize it under fire. By the end of the first day, the situation on the three red beaches was critical. Marines had landed in isolated spots and held a slender toehold at the invasion beaches. Only at Green Beach had some progress under Major Mike Ryan begun. However, Marines at the three red beaches and the Green Beach understood the big fear was yet to come, the fear of a Japanese nighttime counterattack. I'm, you know, we've never been in battle before, but to me it didn't look like we had enough men that was alive scattered up and down that uh, seawall there to fight anybody. And I didn't sleep a wink, nobody else slept a wink or anything. And anybody that moved, he got shot. The time that I became scared was after dark that night, laying on that beach, knowing that if the Japanese could mount an attack and come over that seawall, we'd all die. I was scared to death, and I shook. I shook, and I lay there and shook. And I had trouble getting control. And I said to my God, if I can survive tonight, I'll never ask for anything for myself.
The Japanese on Tarawa have long planned and rehearsed night attacks to overwhelm any invading force. But unknown to the thousands of Japanese defenders, Ryan's small group, fewer than 200 men, planned to attack their fortified positions and steal Green Beach back from their grasp in a daring mission that will give their fellow embattled marines a fighting chance. The Forgotten Warriors at the Battle of Tarawa will return in a moment. Against the Odds returns on AHC. Whatever we did was hell. And all of a sudden, it seemed like everything around you, every house, every little window, fire was coming from everywhere. They started firing machine guns, rockets, RPGs. You can see the guys getting hit and still advancing forward. The buck stops here. We put our sweat, blood, and tears into that city. Everything inside of you changed. I hope I get out of this alive. All new Against the Odds, Monday at 10 on AHC. After 24 hours of vicious fighting, the battered marines clinging desperately to the beaches of Tarawa have miraculously survived their first night on the island. The feared night attack by masses of Japanese never materializes. Unknown to the Americans, the previous day's bombardment has killed the brilliant Japanese commander, Admiral Shibasaki, and his staff and obliterated the island's thinly buried communication lines, preventing them from organizing a coordinated attack. But the Japanese are still very much in command of the island. At 11 a.m., Colonel David Shoup, commanding officer on Tarawa, receives a shocking radio message from Major Mike Ryan, thought to be dead along with his men of L Company. Ryan reports that he is not only alive, but in charge of some 200 shocked and straggling Marines and sailors, along with the only two functioning tanks on Tarawa, and they are attempting to secure Green Beach. The news is incredible. Major Ryan, got his orphans up off the ground and moving. As the orphans move out, Ryan faces a deadly reality. His group of infantrymen, tankers, mortarmen, sailors, and cooks have never trained or fought together as a unit. If they are to survive, they must adapt and improvise new tactics to overcome the challenges presented by a never-before-faced battlefield. We spent all that day developing what became the standard tank infantry tactics in the Pacific in World War II. Tanks and the infantry had never trained properly together. What we did is the infantry would get behind us, and when they would spot Japanese activity, then we would fire into the Japanese position. And then the infantry coming right in within two or three seconds and throwing explosives in those positions or putting flame in there.
course, they took a tremendous amount of machine gun fire. I had no idea before that how how really violent combat could be. Pillbox by pillbox, they began seizing more land until they controlled all of Green Beach. However, time was of the essence at Tarawa. But the toehold was so slim that at any moment, a Japanese counterattack could still push these Marines back into the sea. With no time to plan an assault onto Green Beach, no undamaged transport vessels to carry out an assault, and limited reserve troops, command must rely on a daring, untested new amphibious unit. While the fighting unfolded at Tarawa's beaches, out to sea, a reinforcement battalion waited for orders to go in and join their fellow Marines in taking this island from the Japanese. Commanding the unit is 27-year-old Major Willie K. Jones. His men have christened him Admiral of the Condom Fleet because they assault enemy beaches not in mechanized steel-hulled vehicles, but rubber boats. Trained for stealth situations, they are not designed to assault fortified beaches in broad daylight. But Jones's men are lethal and bold, specialists in the use of assault demolitions, and their hour has come. Now, the men before them had already gone to shore, but in mechanized boats. You get a sense of security when you have this shield of metal between you and the water or between you and the shell. Jones's men were going ashore in rubber boats. Anxiety, fear, you know, going into the beach. There's a moment you're afraid, but after a while, I think it's hysteria that takes over. I don't know what it is, but suddenly there were moments I felt like I was 10 feet tall, that nothing could stop me. And that's crazy, but that's the way you felt. And I think that's what the heck made heroes or whatever. They're out of their minds. On day three of America's first engagement of their Central Pacific campaign, the incredible sacrifice and tenacity of the Marines on the three red beaches of Tarawa has seen some movement forward, but it has come at a heavy cost. On Green Beach, the fragile toehold captured by Mike Ryan and his orphans has provided a critical clearing to land Major Willie K. Jones and his condom fleet. When Jones landed his men at Green Beach for the first time in the whole battle, the Marines had an entire organization, a battalion, ready to go. That rubber boat took me to the barbed wire. And of course, you can't go through barbed wire. So we get out of the boats and across the barbed wire. There's a, there are bodies on that barbed wire. 
commanding officer told me, Mammy, he said, get your man the hell out of here. A harder for my squad, second squad, follow me. That's one run I remember. I took off. I prayed I zigged when I should and zagged when I should. And I knew, I can tell when bullets are going real close and cut, cutting the air. I went back to where I knew Ryan was, and I found uh, Bill Jones there with him. He had lots of troops. They were fresh. Ryan's people were filthy dirty and dead tired. They were deciding exactly how Jones's troops were going to relieve Ryan's troops and push down that side of the island. With the entire western end of Tarawa now in the hands of Ryan's exhausted orphans, Jones and his men will attack eastward in an effort to annihilate hundreds of fortified Japanese defenses. If they survive, they will sweep across the center of the island, encountering ever-increasing machine gun and artillery fire, and join forces from the Red Beaches to secure the island. I couldn't find a target. There was no targets. I saw no Japanese. You couldn't tell their bunkers. They look like big sand piles. But under those sand piles, you wouldn't believe it, and I wouldn't believe it when I saw it later. A three-story building. I never saw a three-story building or an island. As Jones's men begin moving across the center of Tarawa, the men on the red beaches begin to consolidate their gains, and together they seal off the western and eastern edges of the island, forcing the Japanese back into isolated pockets of resistance. As night approaches, Jones spreads his men out in a protective perimeter and prepares them. Now isolated, Jones believes the Japanese will throw everything they have at the young Marines in a fight to the death. And they will. We set up for the night. The Japanese, they kept yelling at us. They spoke good English. We found out later they all sack it up. That's what they usually do. Get up the nerve, you know. Now I'm about 100 yards off to the other end of the airfield. And I see Japanese charging, screaming. I saw a group of Marines going up. And I also saw Japanese that we pushed the Yenzeratis coming at them. And I knew there were going to be a hand-to-hand -hand combat there. Jones fields a call from a young lieutenant yelling, we're killing them as fast as they come at us, but we can't hold out much longer. We need reinforcements. Jones can only yell back, we haven't got them, you've got to hold. You gotta worry about some guy getting up and taking off. 
We stay there and fight to the end. He'll stay right there and fight till, till he died. As the battle for Tarawa rages into its third night, Major Willie K. Jones and his men are now locked into a horrific battle with the Riku Sentai Japanese troops on the eastern end of the island. The Japanese are screaming, and I hear firing, and after a while they get so close there's no firing. That's when your enemy is within arm's length. That's when, at times, you probably smell his breath. And you're there to kill each other. They charged in four different attacks that last night. Each time, the Americans repelled them, but at great cost. Eventually, it turned the tide there that night. Enough Marines stood up to this bonsai attack to break it at its fullest fury. By 6 a.m. on the morning of the fourth day, it was over. The Japanese, confident their night attacks would break the will of the young Americans, now lay dead in mass. For the valiant Marines of Jones's unit, 45 lay dead, 128 wounded. Major Jones come up there and saw the front lines and everything. See how many men got killed and everything. They had tears in his eyes. In the final hours of Tarawa, America unleashed its fury in one final devastating blow that eliminates the last of the Japanese resistance on the eastern tip of the island. True to their warrior code, the few remaining hardcore Japanese defenders choose death by suicide over surrender. Fewer than 20 of the 4,500 Japanese defenders are captured alive by the time the island is declared secure at 3.30 p.m. Mike Ryan and his orphans, Willie K. Jones and his condom fleet, and the men on the red beaches had accomplished in 76 brutal hours what Japanese Admiral Shibasaki had once proclaimed couldn't be done by a million men in a hundred years. The young, often inexperienced Marines had done the impossible. Against brutal odds and an unrelenting foe, they had given America its first and most crucial victory in the Central Pacific Campaign. The invaluable experience and momentum, along with new battle tactics inspired and proved on Bloody Tarawa, would eventually lead America to the doorstep of Japan and the end of World War II.
all these ragtag guys with their uniforms falling off and uh, a lot of wounded and uh, complete decimation and crawling back aboard this ship and uh, just good guys, ones that you'd take to back you up or you'd go with them or do anything that needed to be done. Kind of looked at each other and said, hey, we made it, it's over with. You know what it comes down to first? Your outfit, your buddies. Honest to God, that's where you do it. You're not thinking of country, you're not thinking of nothing. When you get into a battle, you're thinking of your buddies. You are fighting for them. You're fighting for your buddies. These were buddies that would stick with you. They would stay with you. They would help you. They would see that you was taken care of if you was hurt in any way. And all the things that we would do for each other, to me, is the essence of what makes the Marines so cohesive. You had to worry about some guy getting up and taking off. You stay there to fight to the end. That's the way it was. And you would give your life for the man to save his life. That's the way we were trained. That's the way we fought. We as United States Marines. No, I was a 23-year-old first lieutenant with a company of young Marines. Most of them were 18, 19. They were kids. They were kids. They were brave. They did what they were, were asked to do. They were really tremendous. Major Mike Ryan and Major Willie K. Jones were both awarded the Navy Cross for their actions on Tarawa. This podcast was produced by the American Heroes Channel. Join us again next week for Against the Odds, Those Damn Engineers. The story of how one battalion of combat engineers took on the might of Hitler's offensive at the Battle of the Bulge. I'm your host, Shane Bowler. Thank you for listening.